Hello and welcome to Securities, a podcast and newsletter devoted to science, technology, finance, and the human condition. I'm your co-host, Danny Crichton. And today we have Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan, uh, retired uh, after a 36-year military career, where he finalized uh, at, as the inaugural director of the U.S. Department of Defense Joint Artificial Center uh, from 2018 to 2020. Jack, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Danny. I'm really happy to be here with you and Josh for this conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we also have joining us uh, also from New York, uh, Josh Wolf, uh, founder and managing partner of Lux Capital. Josh, welcome as well. Great to be with everybody. Uh, Jack, it, it, uh, it, I think it was on the tail end of a whirlwind tour to Southeast Asia, uh, uh, care of uh, Tony Thomas T2, who's since become a venture partner here at Lux. And I was doing a readout in the Pentagon and got to meet some incredible folks. And you were one of them. And you were really prescient in the role of artificial intelligence and being able to do signal detection and look at patterns of life. You were uh, instrumental in Project Maven, which uh, bore with it in the commercial world and arguably in the cultural zeitgeist, a bit of controversy, so maybe we can dig into that. And then critically important in helping to stand up and run Jake's, uh, which is the joint AI center. So uh, I, I'm not sure where we start on that, but what, what was the earliest kernels for you of recognizing that uh, uh, artificial intelligence in modern warfare was really important? Yeah, so a couple of things. First, Josh, I, I think back to that meeting, and I, I've never forgotten it for a lot of reasons. One, because of... of Wait, was I wearing person. something ridiculous? <laughs> no, just, <laughs> okay. just your, uh, you, you were somebody that I would say was way ahead of the time in terms of where Defense Department was in these technologies. And Dave Spurk, who's this Uber connector, um, brought you in and said, okay, you need to hear this. And what I would say, if I remember this, you know, put words in your mouth, but you know, Josh said something to the effect of you were stunned in your visit. And when I say stunned, I don't mean stunned in a good way. I mean stunned by the lack of technology that was evident in these combat situations because we did have um, ongoing combat operations in the Philippines at the time, and everybody was, was – they recognized the need, this, this thirst for this technology. It just wasn't available to them. Um, so I, you, you had some, some critical um, comments about – what we needed to do. And there was music to our ears because we felt at the time like we were a little bit of a insular and not, not getting this wide reception in the Department of Defense, but that's okay. We were proud to be what I would say is this uh, small, elite, fast-moving team. And, and sort of the kernels that you go back to, Josh, for me, it was just a recognition we couldn't do business any other way. It was just um, those early days of MAVEN before we even had the Joint AI Center as a vision were all about intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, how do we take this just incredible, massive amounts of data that every Intel analyst had to look at, mind-numbing work, hours and hours and hours on the day, and do something different with it to allow them to, I say, augment, accelerate, automate that collection, that exploitation, that analysis. And it was just so clear to us there was nothing in the Department of Defense that was ready for fielding. And I don't disparage what was going on in the research laboratory, some, some of the best research still today on AI, but it was in the research phase. It was what we call low technology readiness level, just not ready to be put into the hands of operators. You saw this, you saw the need for this on the ground where we needed to put something in somebody's hand as quickly as possible. So really that was the the genesis for Project Maven, it was, we can't find this in the Department of Defense. Where is it? Immediately obvious to us. 
it was available in commercial industry in Silicon Valley. And that's where we went going. And we went very fast. As as you know, Colonel Drew Kukor um, ran that team. There's nobody like him. I would say in those days, and I really haven't changed my uh, assessment, a classic disruptor and innovator and said, we're going to get this done one way or another. He was passionate about it. He had time in combat downrange in Iraq. And he said, we just cannot allow this to happen. And, and that's how we got our, our jump start on Project Maven. I would have hired him in a heartbeat to any one of our high-tech companies. He was a, a very shrewd, very smart, technologically sophisticated systems analyst to be able to look at the entire picture. One of the things, and, and this is unclassed, unclassified, uh, was looking at the patterns of life. So you have enormous amount of information that is coming off of uh, aerial imagery platforms, whether that's satellite uh, companies like ours in the past, like Planet Labs, Planet, uh, that were able to do 50 centimeter resolution and get roughly 30 frames a second video, uh, and then others that were taking real-time videos on more sophisticated government-only platforms. Uh, there's a question of, you know, what is this idea of pattern of life and where you're looking for these aberrations? So in an unclassified way, can you explain to the audience, you know, what, what kind of things you would be looking for? Yeah, that's really, it's a really important point too, because this is, this is one of those things we learned in Project Maven. We weren't surprised by it, uh, although I would say maybe we were pleasantly surprised because we, we hoped this would happen, is we developed these technologies. I mean, we didn't develop them. We, we went out to commercial industry. We got these startup companies. We brought them in. We got Google on contract and said, here's the problem we need to solve. And at that time, it was two things, computer vision, natural language processing, you know, processing these enormous amounts of information. But we did it for the intelligence community. What we rapidly found out is we put these technologies in the hands of the special operators who were using the intelligence, but they were not intelligence analysts, and they found different uses for it. And one of those uses, so now you had, I would call this nexus between the operators and the intel analysts about pattern of life. What do we mean by pattern of life? Well, I want to look at um, an area of interest, and we'll call it just a named area of interest. There's something happening there that we're very interested in. And maybe there was an IED the previous day, and we want to be able to trace that explosion, All I say IED, an improvised explosive device. Something blew up. Something maybe killed uh, innocent people. We want to trace that back all the way to where that vehicle came from. Where, What village was it in? Who was there with them? What weapons do they have? What is the pattern of life that tells us more about what we're dealing with rather than what they had to deal with at the time was one specific incident at one specific time in space with no understanding of the bigger context here. This was about understanding that larger context. So critical when you're talking counterterrorism, counterinsurgency operations. So the operators and the analysts started working together. Each um, sort of tailoring their own screen, so to speak, with these Maven capabilities, but each being able to share what they saw on their respective screens. It's a powerful way of doing business. And, and I don't have to tell you to. You understand the importance of putting minimal viable products in the hands of people as soon as possible and let them figure out how to do it. We didn't pretend that we knew the best ways to use these technologies. What we did know is that they knew how to do it. And if we gave it to them, they would figure it out faster than we ever could do a couple of thousands of miles away in the Pentagon. So if, if uh, for, for people's benefit, if you imagine a digital artifact, uh, you know, or a, or a digital asset, which could be uh, some particular marking in a video, it could be a, a white van, a blue van, a motorcycle, and you see that going up a certain way. And every day from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m., somebody's doing a commute, and all of a sudden there's an aberration in that pattern of life that suddenly, instead of going to work seven days a week or five days a week as they do, they suddenly are veering off, and then they go into a building, and the building 
and they stop and they park there, is met by another vehicle, and that vehicle, you know, took an aberrant path from its pattern of life. You might suggest that subject A and subject B were meeting and that something was being exchanged, and maybe it was benign and innocent, or maybe uh, to the point here where you knew that there was an event like an IED explosion, a term that T2 and many others use, this idea of left of bang. You know, how do you get before the event if you were to rewind the DVR of life and understand what were the patterns and the sequences of events that led to that and how might you disrupt that to help prevent human suffering and loss of life in the future? So, yeah, very profound. And I was just going to say, Josh, your very point. This is what when you say what is AI and what does machine learning, artificial intelligence do extraordinarily well? Things like pattern analysis, things like finding signal in noise, and most importantly, as you just said, aberrations. What's different? As a human, I just get exhausted. An analyst can only look at a screen for so long. I'm going to miss something. Um, it's just going to happen, whereas the machine does what the machine does very well. And it says, you want me to look at this? When I find that thing you wanted me to look for, I will let you know. And as we got further and further in this journey, and we never quite got there yet because this becomes quite a bit more difficult, is to do what you were suggesting is now can we put context on top of that? And even more than that, can we get to this idea of reasoning? Who's doing what for what reasons and where? This is where you say left of bang. I want to take this as far back as I, who's funding these people? Where are their weapons coming from? What is Pakistan's involvement in this? And back and back and back, uh, almost the Stan McChrystal way of looking at the world and Tony Thomas was also leading the way in understanding this pattern of life development. And that's what we found is this, these capabilities, these technologies could do that, as well as is analyze enormous amounts of uh, just data coming off of, um, it could be scraps of paper in somebody's pocket, it could be digital uh, data, it could be CDs, whatever it was, you needed something to be able to analyze that as closely to real time as you could, because it's very possible there was another imminent threat coming to some place uh, in the country. I was super impressed with the creativity as you were just describing the sort of various um, panoply of signals. You know, it could be something that's analog, it could be something that's digital, but it really takes an act of imagination, creativity to think about, you know, how are these things interconnected and moving the puzzle pieces together? And and that that was something where the human in the loop, the human intelligence piece of this was not going to basically be coming from the machine. The machine might be able to process and analyze and find the aberrations, but it was really the human that was saying, you know, I wonder if there's some link between this and this, and then, you know, turn to the machine to be able to prosecute and interrogate uh, the data that's coming off of that. And what do humans do so well? I mean, this is why we pay people to do this rather than machines is the um, deductive, inductive, abductive reasoning. But they just didn't have time to do those things. So we, humans are, are good at logic and, and, and getting through a problem and understanding what the bigger context may be. So this idea, and this gets into a much, much um, bigger, bigger concept of human machine teaming. And how do you do this right? We're not even close to figuring that out right now. I'd say commercial industry is doing a little bit better in many respects than that than than the military is just because we're still um, far behind. But get through that data as quick as possible. And as you said, let's put minds at work on that extra piece. So how do we provide the context to that? Let's talk a little bit about that uh, human and machine interaction. This goes back all the way to Kasparov and uh, yeah, Deep Blue or Big Blue, I forget what it was, uh, where we, we had IBM's chess machines and humans and they were, and, and basically the conclusion was uh, machine might be human, but human plus machine will be machine. Uh, that there was sort of this pairing that uh, man and machine was going to be better. Uh, there's all kinds of different dimensions of this. There's the analytical, there's the um, uh, intelligence piece, and then there's the ethical piece, which is one that is... Uh, really the source of profound debates in society and one that was, of course, involved in MAVEN as well. So let's talk about the uh, collaborations between man and machine and the ethical layer on top of that. 
Yeah, so important to go down this path. First of all, um, I have become the strongest possible proponent of saying something to the effect of we have to completely redesign how humans and machines interact in the future environment. We have gotten away with it in the past because machines, for whatever their flaws, humans could fix those flaws. And humans and machines weren't necessarily interacting in a way that they're going to interact in an AI-driven world. It is the machine is reporting the results. The human would interpret those results. The human would take action. And a lot of times we built systems in the military that were not just, say, optimized for user interface, user experience. They were just, they were very good at what they did, but they were not very sophisticated in UI, UX. It's going to change. And it's, I believe, will radically change in the future. So we do have to think about how we redesign these systems so that humans and machines are truly in some sort of partnership. And I'm not saying that to make it an anthropomorphic idea. It is just that humans and machines are going to be constantly interacting. There will be different roles, responsibilities, interdependencies between these. And in some cases, the human will do almost everything. In other cases, the machine has to do almost everything. And human intervention can actually lead to a worse result. But in many cases, I think this is a bell curve, right? The most of the bell curve in the middle will be human machines constantly interacting. And we have to think about what that interaction looks like. And then this other point, Josh, which is, I put this just at the top of my list always, is this ethical piece of it. How do we redesign these systems to be responsible? And what I mean by responsible, um, safe, lawful, and ethical. Now, you could get into a whole philosophical discussion, what do we mean by ethics? But I will tell you in the Department of Defense, one of the things I'm most proud of is pushing those responsible AI tenants out the door. The Secretary of Defense signed them because we understood, first of all, people don't generally want to trust the United States military with AI. Unfair as it may be, there's a lot of lingering distrust there about what we're going to do with these. So we had to prove we're serious about this. We had to prove we were being transparent about this. We were trying to prove that we were going to adhere to international humanitarian law, no matter what kind of machine it was, AI-enabled or otherwise. So the idea of setting a foundation, and it a pretty high bar. If we're going to use these in combat, we want them to meet this bar before we ever consider fielding. And that brings into other things like test and evaluation, how seriously we, we have to take test and evaluation. And I think there has been some shortcuts in commercial industry and T&E over the years, test and evaluation, that we couldn't afford because of the gravity of some of these systems. Now, there's a difference between a business function machine and one that is involved in making life and death um, sort of decisions by humans. They're very different there, but we have to put that bar high to begin with. And I, and I thought we did that very well. And uh, from what I can tell, being on the outside now, the department is continuing to sort of take that very serious approach to these technologies. I, I have to tell you the, the distinction you just made in commercial, uh, you know, uh, some companies are testing autonomous vehicles and it's causing loss of life as people trust these things or are led to induced to trust them and and it's just not ready for prime time on the on the highways. Uh and 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 you, you haven't seen their sort of regulatory apparatus, you know, crush down on that. Whereas I, I was super impressed inside uh one of these operating centers out in a undisclosed location and I'm watching drone footage and I'm watching drone pilots and you've got somebody there that is flying and somebody there that's operating the potential munitions and kinetics. And there's these two, three other people on top of them. And I'm like, are those engineers? Are they visual? No, they were lawyers. And they were there to make sure that there was a different technology, which was the code of law and the code of ethics, 
on how they would engage or not engage and the, the hierarchy of those decisions and how they got made. And I was just blown away because I just assumed that you had somebody there that was effectively playing a modern video game. And when it was their uh, time to make a, 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 a call that they would make it. But no, there was this legal apparatus, this ethical apparatus, which gave me enormous um, inspiration and comfort. And I don't think the public really realizes that. So yeah, maybe talk about the, those rules that you helped to define and that the, the DOD signed off on. Yeah, and the audience, of course, can't see me because I was nodding my head because I knew exactly who you were going to say. They're lawyers, and nobody understands the role that these lawyers play. And the the lawyer's role goes far back in the development of a system. And and I've been involved in a couple of different projects writing about this in terms of for these AI-enabled systems, lawyers, just like they'll be on the floor of operations helping commanders make those final decisions about whether to launch a weapon or should not launch a weapon, they'll also be involved in the design phase and the development phase and the testing phase. Now, it won't necessarily be a heavy thumbprint during those phases, but somebody has to have some degree of oversight about what these systems are going to do, how they're going to operate. There are many, many similarities between an AI-enabled system and other systems, but there are some crucial, and I would say fundamental differences, especially when you start looking at a future of sort of online learning systems. I mean, still fairly deterministic today, other than sort of behavior under stochastic conditions, you may get some weird result. But still, for the most part, uh, largely deterministic results with some of these um, machine learning systems. But we're going to get to a future where it's going to be more than that. So we have to take these into account from the very beginning. And um, just to take a, a long story very short, the Defense Innovation Board, who had been our mentors from the very beginning, who had been very critical of the department for not recognizing the revolution in AI and ML that was happening in commercial industry, got us going, helped us get moving with, with MAVEN and sort of right by our side and helping us out. But they did an 18-month project to say what should be the principles of responsible artificial intelligence. They came up with five. They turned them over to us. We didn't do a whole lot to change them. Just we made them a little bit more military operational specific, turned them to the Secretary of Defense. And at the time, he signed them. Um, and they're five, responsible, equitable, traceable, governable, reliable. Um, if I remember right, I, I don't, I've never forgotten them. And they've gone a step further since I retired to take those. And as I always used to say when I was interviewed, about this. As hard as it was to get to those five principles, it was easy compared to how to actually implement them. And we started working on that. We started looking at how do we put contract language in to say, I can't hold you accountable in your contract, but what we'd like to do is say, can you get us to the governable principle? How would you do that? What about reliable? What about accountability? And so we were in this sort of iterative process that continues to this day. And this is where um, those of us who have been in the military a long time, like as you said earlier, Josh, 36 years for me, there is seems to be a pretty deep divide at times about those who have never seen the military operate and those who have. And Josh, you saw it on the operations floor. Um, there is some, someone will be held accountable when things go awry in a battlefield or a battle space, could be in cyberspace, could be in, in space above us. Someone will be held responsible and accountable. A lot of people seem not to trust the military and believe that will happen. Say, well, the machine did it. You're, are you going to sue the software um, maker, developer? No, of course not. Commanders get held accountable. Have we always done that uh, perfectly in the United States military? 
doing? No, but that's a separate problem of holding people accountable. We will not have this idea of a responsibility gap where machines get a break because they're AI driven and no human would know how those operate. That's unacceptable for us, especially in this area of life and death decision making. Humans make those decisions. Machines do not make those those decisions. And when something goes wrong, somebody's going to be held accountable. Um, And that's the way it should be. Extremely, you know, and profound ethical position, uh, one that I don't think the public appreciated. And I don't think that they appreciated it definitely at the time of the controversy within Google, let's say around Project Maven. If you could talk about that, if you were there and sort of were witnessing some of the debates, we want protests, we want public debate. That, that was an interesting situation where a U.S. company uh, was really, in a sense, overrun or overruled by its employees to say, we don't want to work on this thing because we believe it's unethical. And Microsoft and other people sort of took a different stance to say, no, like, we have a duty to help reduce human suffering and serve our government because that's what allows us as a company here in the United States and our free capital markets to, to exist. What was it like inside the Pentagon around the time of those debates and how were they being shaped? And, and um, is there something that you would have, in hindsight, done differently to shape that public debate? Or do you think that it sort of all worked out in the end? Um, no, I would, I would do a couple of things differently on both, both ends. But to, to sort of put this into to synthesize. And, and if you can, it, yeah. and, and sorry, if you can, just, just uh, for those that aren't familiar with that debate around Project Maven at the time, maybe uh, also just give the historic context. Yeah, that's what I, I wanted to do. So when we started Project Maven, as I said, we got about four companies, uh, startup companies on contract pretty quickly. But then, you know, people were really surprised that Google ended up on contract with us. Like, whoa, who, you I mean, people were a little dismissive of this little Maven thing. They're hearing about it. not, And then all of a sudden we got this biggest company in the United States in tech on contract with us. And the reason we wanted Google, the reason we needed Google is because of a wicked problems that we were dealing with. This is this particular sensor that went on one of these um, unmanned area vehicles, commonly known as a drone. Basically, this thing could park over an entire city and look at the entire city 24-7. No analyst on the face of the planet could be able to analyze that information. Just couldn't do it. Honestly, the was, numbers... this what, was this what people were referring to as the Gorgon sensor? Yes, sort of Gorgon Stare, MQ-9 Gorgon Stare. Very specific sensor in, in his... Is the, this is an important distinction here. That sensor, when it was on a drone, there were no weapons on that drone. It was just an intelligence surveillance reconnaissance sensor. You didn't put weapons on that MQ-9. That was not understood by some people in Google, unfortunately, and, and I'll get to and, kind and, of... Uh, and, and for people's benefit, MQ-9 adjacent platform to what is commonly known as the Predator. Yeah, Predator and Reaper. So this is a Reaper with a MQ-9 Gorgon Sierra. And look at just the entire city block. And, and humans, uh, we, we ran the numbers. We knew the numbers. A human could get through 5 to 6% of that scene. They just couldn't do it. Um, this could do it, in theory, instantly if you did it. But it was extraordinarily complex problem set, which is why we need Google software engineer. You know, we're talking down to the pixel level, trying to determine one vehicle in the middle of an entire city in this big scene. And Google is very, very helpful in, in that process. Now, um, in doing this, they made a decision internal to the company. Um, they had been doing work with Department of Defense, but nothing related to sort of uh, drones. Um, they wanted to keep it quiet. They were, uh, they understood that some people in the company probably wouldn't be excited about this project with the department. So they elected to not be very transparent. And that was their decision. We supported them. I said, we'll do whatever you want. We'll talk about it. If you want us to talk about it, we won't if we won't. So um, we didn't talk much about it. And that led, unfortunately, to a lot 
lot of assumptions that I think were, were flawed about what this project was, what it was not, um, and it was just building to a protest internal to the company. Overall numbers, very small. Um, I, I would say it was about 2,000 people, um, plus or minus a little bit, and the size of Google is actually very small, but it uh, sort of had led to this internal turmoil to the point where at the end of the contract, they didn't leave us early, they decided not to extend the contract. Uh, we saw it coming. I, I, I say, uh, I, I kind of use different words at times, but I say I was extremely disappointed. I was not shocked. We knew it was coming because they just couldn't deal with the internal turmoil. They had to, they had to stop it and sort of do a reset and decide what the company really wanted to do and have a conversation in, inside the company. Now, um, you two are in business. You understand, to us, it looked like um, people were telling the senior leaders at the company how to run the company. I mean, there's a board of directors, you have a CEO, all these other things, and yet this small protest was going on inside the company. It felt very odd to us that one of the biggest and most successful and greatest companies in the United States in technology was not going to work with the Department of Defense on intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance to help protect U.S. troops, allied and partner troops, to minimize collateral damage, to do all these other things that had nothing to do with weapons, but immediately became a killer drones discussion and fomented a little bit by some people that were interested in making that the center of attention. So, so I, 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 want, I want to pause on that part because I, I at times feel sometimes like I have conspiratorial views. Um, organic uh, protest, of course, is something that is entirely reasonable. People are expressing their values. And even if they don't fully understand the situation, they can and should uh, protest and protest loudly. Uh, and management and the public and the press should cover that. Um, but the, the potential uh, influence of uh, foreign information operations fomenting uh, dissent, something that we've seen in elections and in other issues that can create divisiveness amongst Americans, can uh, amplify some of our, you know, the worst angels of our nature. Um, was, it, was there evidence of that, of, of sort of foreign information operations or others that were fomenting some of this dissent? Yeah, without getting into details I can't get into, I say there was evidence. Um, somebody said I made accusations. I said they're not accusations, they're assertions. <laughs> they're assertions based on evidence. Mm. And, and just look at it this way. If you're in China or Russia, do you really want Google to work with the Department of Defense or you or you? It's no effort on their part to do some influence and information operations, stir the pot a little bit and hope it works. And in this case, it actually worked. It was free. Well, what a return on investment that is. Stop Google working with the Department of Defense. So, yes, there was evidence. I just I'm not going to get into to details because I can't. But it doesn't surprise me. It shouldn't surprise anybody else. Um, and these things happen in life. But unfortunately, I think maybe there was some naivete of people who believed that this was all in it just purely or an organic uh, matter, and there was no outside influence, but uh, we did have evidence to the contrary. Well, General Shanahan, I, I appreciate all this. I mean, I, I want to talk about the transition between threats, because you were there at JIC 2018-2020. You announced your retirement from the service after 36 years in January of 2020. Um, one of those uh, very propitious, depending on your point of view, of, 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 of you know, turning point in history. Uh, but, you know, COVID becomes uh, a huge story just two months later, but it was sort of an inkling, just a couple of people sick uh, in, in Wuhan and, and starting to go into Milan and Italy. Um, but, you know, and I think about when you were there, um, counterinsurgency, Afghanistan, Pakistan, um, you know, tracking the movements uh, and social networks across these groups. And we pivot two years forward and we're talking about 
East Asia. We're talking about new threats, uh, nation state actors. You accelerate into the Ukraine, Russia in the last couple of years. It feels like the entire battlefield has shifted. We've had totally different domains, totally different threat uh, environment. Um, and yet artificial intelligence to me seems like the fundamental across all that. So I'm curious, you know, sort of as the inaugural director, you, you sort of set this place up. Um, how much has that world changed because of the different threats versus how much was sort of continuity between the two? Yeah, I would, I would like to say and claim that we saw this coming, but um, we had to focus on the Middle East first. And people say, well, why didn't you just start with China? Well, first of all, that's where we did not have people on the ground dying. Um, and two, we didn't have full motion video of battlefields in the Middle East like we had in the Middle East. We didn't have that in China. We didn't have North Korea. So it was a matter of where is the data and where is the operational imperative. But we knew it was coming. I was talking about this at the time that there is something else we've got to get ready for, and that is a peer competitor. Um, and and it, it will it will surprise us the magnitude of this. But it's interesting, Danny, you know, so you mentioned COVID. I saw COVID almost as a bridge project because right before I retired, about six months before and COVID has just hit in January of 2020. And we came up with a project called Project Salus. And I was so proud of our team. We're still very young and in, informing in and trying to hire people and get a budget and do those other things you have to do as a, as a startup. And um, all of a sudden, we kind of went into lockdown mode. But we had a team of people that said, you know what, Northern Command, which is our big command out in Colorado that's responsible for the sort of homeland defense and other things, and then the, and the National Guard, who, of course, is involved in the state matters every day and helping governors um, control pandemics and disaster relief, needed help. And we formed a project called Project Stalis to do just that. And it was really, if I, if I look at it in economic terms, it was a supply and demand problem. You know, you, you, whether it was uh, foodstuffs or vaccines or something else, you have some surplus over here, you have uh, surf, uh, demand over here, how do you make that work? And we had access to incredible amounts of data, including a CEO of a company I won't name, it's one of the biggest in the company, he said, you want our data, you got it, just do it. Um, and so I was, everybody just came together and said, we're going we're to go after this. We made a lot of progress with that. But at the same time, it was like we're watching with one eye. COVID with this other eye that rapidly became our whole body turning in the other direction say, but we have got to focus on what's happening in two different places, the Indo-Pacific, and then of course, what's, what's happening now, uh, Ukraine and, and Russia. Um, and what you said, I, I, I could not agree more that the common thread across all of this will be AIML and other technologies and quantum at some point and other things. And, it, and it's how these technologies will be put together in new and different creative ways that I think ultimately will make the difference. I think Josh and his travels around visiting different um, organizations in the military see that it's really the operating concepts that matter, that the technologies are individual technologies. It is the diffusion of those and how you put those together in a battlefield that will really make the difference between what's side has got a competitive advantage or not. And the good news is, again, I don't have the details because I'm not privy to the classified, but I know that Project Maven is being used very successfully in support of Ukrainian operations right now because that's what we always expected. This is going to be a data-driven fight. Um, you've got this weird juxtaposition of trench warfare that looks like World War One with bleeding-edge drone technology that at some point will have more AI on it. And so how do you make all that work together? One of the ways you do that is bring in a lot more um, technology in the form of AI and ML. So the world is, is changing and the Department of Defense recognizes the change. They still have a lot of work to do to accelerate it.
And when you talk about, you know, uh, accelerating and continuing on that change, I mean, obviously, you were at the vanguard building out the center, trying to connect the dots across the different services, the combatant commands, uh, where everyone's sort of on their own own budgets, own uh, purposes and missions. Um, You were trying to connect the dots and say, look, artificial intelligence doesn't matter if you're in the Middle East, doesn't matter if you're in China, the techniques are the same, the scientists, the research, the products oftentimes can overlap. Um, Do you think the Pentagon has gotten better about thinking about AI as a sort of you know, fungible resource, fungible products that can be used in different um, contexts, or is, is it still a struggle to sort of get AI into into the loop? It's it's still a little bit of a struggle with with signs of optimism. And I know I mentioned Dave Spurk's name uh, a little bit earlier. Dave was the first chief data officer of the department, and he wrote um, and got published a DoD data strategy. That to me is sort of the starting point. You've got to have a data vision and a data strategy. Um, too many times the department has tried to jump into AIML without understanding what's going on beneath the hood or underneath the hood. If I were to say what worries me most about the Defense Department and many other places in the federal government is this idea of the underlying infrastructure and architecture was built in a hardware age in an industrial age. It needs to be digital modernized for an information age and a software driven age. Um, and and my, my former CTO at the Jake, the first CTO I had, Nam Mulchandani, a commercial industry guy, came from um, cybersecurity in Silicon Valley. He's now the CIA's first CTO, interestingly enough. And he wrote a report. Um, we co-wrote it, but he really wrote it and I edited it on this idea of software-defined warfare. And our point is, if you're in commercial industry, you read this and say, what do you mean the department doesn't already do this? <laughs> you're shocked <laughs> by the fact that right. you, there, there are not software best practices other than in these little pockets, maybe around the department, but you've got to get the underlying infrastructure right, which includes, of course, the data piece, and then you can actually start moving much faster. You can get away with doing the AIML in in what I call boutique pilot projects. They just don't scale. This is what industry has learned so many times, so much faster than the department has, this idea of not just speed. Department's getting a little bit better at speed, but they've got to get much better at scale. Now, is it easier for an Amazon or Microsoft or Google who are born as digital companies and the more data they get, the better they are and the more powerful those algorithms become? Of course, the department has to accelerate that part of it. Everybody wants to do AIML, but nobody's quite willing to make the investments underneath to say there's only one way to do this and then we got to fix how we're doing things beneath the hood. Well, I think particularly I, the commercial, have- yeah, please, guys. Oh, sorry, I, I had one quick question. When I was amazed, I think it was in the Philippines. Uh, you've got the Chinese fifty cent army. You know, people are basically paid fifty cents for every tweet and um, you know piece of information, propaganda that they're putting out there to advance some of the interests of the, of the Chinese Communist Party. We had, I think, one woman, you know, in her mid fifties in Central Florida or South Florida or Tampa. Um, you know, basically putting out tweets and it had to say on the bottom of it, you know, this was approved by the State Department, you know, basically voiding of, of all efficacy. So we're, we're fighting, in a sense, an asymmetric bureaucratic warfare against an asymmetric uh, digital army that is putting out propaganda. Uh, what, what is your take on, on this information space and, and where AI and ML are going to play a role in that? Well, I tell you, Josh, I couldn't agree more with how you just said that. Um, I do have a background in this. At one point, as a one-star general, I was in charge of information operations for the Department of Defense on the joint staff. Um, It's kind of a special organization within the joint staff, and I had a huge portfolio of all sorts of strange and crazy things, including this thing I was handed in 2011 called cyber, and go, okay, what the hell is this? Um, But that's a different story. If I'm not not mistaken, I think it was a half joke, but one of the doors in one of these areas was like, the dangerous ideas room. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. And 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 we spent a lot of time thinking about influence and information operations. What uh, there some of the smart sort of leading thinkers on this to include, by the way, in the Chinese on the on the PLA People Liberation Army and this idea of the cognitive domain. I don't look at it as a domain necessarily, but we're really targeting people still. And so this idea of we are in an asymmetric fight, we do have our hands tied behind our back when it comes to influence and information operations. The idea of having to go up seven layers to get approval to send a tweet, as absurd as it sounds, has truth to it. As you know from your experience there, we have got to move at the speed of relevance. And if that means you're going to accept a higher degree of risk sometimes, I say so be it. Why? Because there's a temporal dimension to this. You'll move on, right? Just like in social media world, 24 hours later, it's a different conversation. So you've got to be willing to take a little bit higher risk. I think what you saw is probably an appetite at the lowest tactical level saying, please, let us do this. We know what we're doing at this level. We know our adversary. We know what they're doing. I want to react to them right now. I don't want to wait 72 hours because it's too late at that point. They're on to a different game and a different message, and they're going to succeed because they're they're always going to do it faster than we can do it. So I would like to believe that um, despite its fits and starts over the past probably five to eight years, the Global Engagement Center at State understands the problem. Can they move necessarily fast enough to get away with this? And this is, again, back to almost a maven analogy. People start conflating the idea of influence operations in the United States with what we're trying to do overseas. We stayed away from anything having to do with the American public. It was verboten. We just would never go there. But by God, if we're if we're slowing down and what we're trying to do overseas, we're just going to lose because um, these technologies you, you you can guess that China and Russia are, are adopting AI and ML for information purposes. We've seen that in election interference. We're going to see it in spades in 2024. We've got to be prepared for it, and we have to move as fast. Now, uh, there are all other things that, that are germane to that conversation as well. We need people who understand cultural context and understand the sophistication with this messages. We don't want to do just sort of dumb messaging just because we can't. You get that wrong, and we're in trouble. So as I used to say, we'd better off doing no information operations than bad information operations. But with these technologies, we have a chance to do very good and very sophisticated and very quick operations, and we should be moving a lot faster. I'm watching something of geopolitical importance today, which is um, uh, our reliance on semiconductors, of course, and the world's reliance on semiconductors in Taiwan, and that being a key uh, reason for its import. Um, in, in, in contested industrial space. We're standing up a TSMC. We are standing up a, uh, a fab in uh, Arizona. And I'm watching as the protests are starting to begin between the labor unions there on the ground and TSMC and some of the rhetoric that is being created externally about uh, racism and uh, how American workers are lazy. And I'm just looking at this and being like, I mean, this is just such an easy vector. It's such an easy vector to exploit the emotions of people and get them riled up and suddenly get this thing that is important for U.S. domestic production of semiconductors to get slowed down and grinded to a halt in the gears of, you know, human animus. And and uh, we do need that domestic defensive capability against those external operations. But I, I, I do note your point that uh, DOD is not focused on that today. Yeah. And, and was it was it the CEO of TSMC said, uh, look, I am all in favor of putting a plant there in Arizona, but 
you're in the United States and you have some issues you're going to have to work through. They have to do everything, as you just said, sort of the, the union aspect of it. Where do I get the water from? Which is these things really require one hell of a lot of water. But uh, just the idea of do you have the worker base required? Um, it, when they started TSMC, maybe it was a little bit more of an authoritarian environment at the time that you said, we're going to do this. This is a national priority and we're going to go. And it, we're never going to stop. And are we prepared to do that in the United States and Arizona and other places where we put these fabs in? I don't know yet. But um, we can't afford the delay of, okay, um, I, I, look, I don't even want to be dismissive of the red cockaded woodpecker, but we're going to run into those sort of issues like you can't move any further until you've dealt with this individual concern. Okay, but deal with it. You've got to keep moving or we're going to be in trouble. I want to. I know we only have a couple minutes left. I want. I want to close this out because we're we're up into 2023. We're just talking about um, you know uh, foreign operations, and obviously there's a new set of enabling technologies around generative AI. Um, we suddenly have the ability to not just create um, authentic sounding messages, but we can do it at scale. Uh, and when we talk about scale, we're talking millions of messages customized by person potentially. Um, you know, we can ingest millions of data points about individual voters or individual people. Uh, we can custom write those scripts back to you. And uh, uh, General Shanahan, I know you've commented a little bit on, on the implication of this. And so just as we close out on sort of the current threat environment and technologies that are here, how do you see generative AI playing a role in all this uh, from your perspective? Yeah, I, I, uh, your point is one I will um, emphasize with the idea of micro-targeting. It's gonna, it's, it's, we're already seeing signs of it. I think it's going to get even even more lucrative for the adversary to do it because I, can, I have so much information about you individually. This idea in the military of now could I go after a military member's family? Can I do all these other things to sort of catfish him, spearfish him? Um, all, yes, you can. Now, is it going to be productive to do that? I don't know yet, but we're not prepared for that. This is a conversation we have to get very serious about because it's going to accelerate. Um, it won't be hard to come up with these individualized messages and do them at a volume where you could ignore one or two of them, but you can't ignore a million of them. And then what's the impact cumulatively on our society? I think that's a, that's a very serious and uh, different discussion, but one that we also have to have is the societal effects of these, and, and we're going to drive ourselves further apart. We need to have a serious conversation. I also think we're going to be at the point very soon, probably at it already, where you need AI and ML to detect AI and ML because you just don't have human capacity to be able to say, was that generated um, by generative AI? Um, you're going to need generative AI to do that in, in the sort of classic you know, generative adversarial network approach to doing business. You're going to have to do that. So it will be sort of this continuous, like it always has been, cat and mouse game of one side gets better, the other side gets better detection and so on and so forth. But we have to be ready for it, and we're not ready for it right now. I do have my reservations about generative AI, but I also am an um, incurable optimist about the potential for these to do everything from intelligence analysis to force planning to looking at how we fight um, against this particular adversary based on the people that are involved in that in that battle or whatever. So it it is enormous potential. It needs a lot of work still, and I'm, I was happy to see that Craig Martell, uh, the director of the, the CDAO, the Chief Digital AI Office in the Pentagon has just agreed to stand up a generative AI task force, which is called Task Force Lima. And it can't just be about how we use these for sort of battle space purposes or back office functions, which probably have more immediate impact on back office than anything else. But it's also about this information and influence things that we have to be concerned about. It's it's coming fast at us. And, I, and it, is a, it is a tsunami. And uh, we're not quite as ready as we need to be for it yet. I, I'm optimistic as well. Uh, but with that, uh, General Shanahan, thank you so much for joining us. Josh, thank you for joining as well. 
Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Josh. Really a pleasure to uh, talk with you. Thank you.